read from the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you have a device or something you can use, you want to look at the screen. And if you're at home, open your Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter four. And I will pray and then begin with the reading of Ecclesiastes four. Almighty God, illuminate our hearts and minds so that we might hear your voice and not this unworthy vessel so that you might be glorified and we might be changed forever by your heart and mind, we pray. Amen. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun and behold the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and skill in work come from man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and is striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has no, uh, not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, Two, is, two will withstand him, and threefold cord is not likely to be broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice, for he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with the youth who, is, who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who came later will not reject, rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and striving after the wind. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, I stumbled through that a little bit, but you know, now we're going to try to sort this out because it's, it's a little confusing and yet it has a very poignant uh, piece of, of knowledge for us or wisdom, you know. Remember that Solomon is probably almost certainly the author of this and, and, and Solomon is by, uh, by the records of, of his, the chronicles of his rulership and everything, is a man who was known as the wisest person in the world and the richest person in the world. And, and what's crazy is, is that he was very, very wise and very, very devout in the beginning, but then his riches and his power and, 
and you know the the praise that was heaped upon him and and the national attention and the international attention it all started to mess with his mind and he became very vain and proud and it was for that reason that the great nation that his father built crumbled under Solomon ultimately and so we're hearing the wisdom of a person after that reflecting on his life and if you remember back to Ecclesiastes 3 the previous chapter Solomon had, had observed that it's very important that God attend to the injustice of rulers, that God deal severely with oppressive rulers. Solomon is, in fact, talking about himself. He, he became an oppressive ruler. He became someone who, for the sake of his vain pursuits, oppressed others and therefore became an unjust ruler. And so he, he is at this point in his life where at least God has dealt with his spirit about it. And he's expressing his remorse in these passages. He also addressed in chapter three that people will understandably push back when he says that if he had it all to do over again, he would have taken each day as it came from God's hand. Isn't that a beautiful thought? I mentioned my dog a minute ago. You know, my dog counts on me every morning to feed her and give her fresh water. My cats do too, for that matter. And they literally take each day as it comes from my hand. And so when I hear Solomon say that, I go, wow, can you imagine if you woke up every morning and you said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm here, Lord, and you believe that the Lord is giving you this day from God's hand, he's, he's putting it before you. And Solomon says, I know, I know, that's hard to do. It seems like we have to make things happen in our world. And so it's hard to understand that. Well, he goes on to say that he also understands that there are people out there who are probably a lot happier because their lives are uncomplicated because they live a simple life. And, and I suppose in his mind, he's picturing, you know, because in those days there were basically small centers of population where a handful of very powerful people lived a life of comfort, but pretty much everybody else lived hand to mouth. They, they were, uh, you know, agronomy and, and animal uh, uh, husbandry, in other words, you know, food production was their business. And they spent most of their days just getting up in the morning and making sure there was food on the table at the end of the day and fresh water to drink. And this is what their lives were like. But then there were people like Solomon who lived in the lap of luxury and they could look out and watch people working through all those pursuits. And, and Solomon's saying he envied them because their life was uncomplicated. Get up in the morning Make sure you do the things you have to do so that you can go to bed at night with a full belly and rest from your labors. And, and he's, but then he says something really profound, especially given our current circumstances. He says, simple lives can be wrecked overnight by unjust leaders who misuse their powers. So this is all chapter three, the one that we haven't 
read today, the one we read last week. And so I'm just kind of refreshing your memory before we understand what was said in chapter four, we have to understand where he's coming from. He's sitting in his place of lofty power and comfort and he's looking out at the lives of those people who he thinks is, is better off than him because their lives aren't so complicated because they're not wrapped up in vain pursuits. They're actually doing things that matter. They're taking the day as it comes from the hand of God and they're grateful when God gives them food for their family and rest for their weary bodies at the end of the day. And he thinks they're better off and then he realizes that for nothing more than a whim or because of some strange ideology or because of some influence from someone in his court, he could make a decision that would ruin that person's life. Wow, wisdom for all the ages. What if all public civic leaders understood that? Really recognized the power. Now in chapter four, Solomon opens with this mysterious analysis of achievement, right? He, he starts by saying, well, by the way, you know that he uses the word vanity 38 times. I mean, 38 times. I think he's trying to use that word uh, strategically. Uh, you know, vanity is going after the wind, he says, you know, striving for the wind. In other words, he's saying that vanity causes us to pursue things that serve nothing more than our pride. And unfortunately, it almost always ends with broken relationships. And so vanity will inevitably leave someone in a apparent victorious position and a whole lot of other people wounded, broken, defeated. So what he wants to communicate here is that when you get on that path of vanity and you start pursuing the things that you want because of pride, you will leave behind a trail of brokenness. And he recognizes this. He's, he's the richest man in the world. He's the envy of all humanity in his day. And, and if we understood him, if more people really grasped the reality of Solomon, they'd understand that he's sort of a symbol of the wealthiest, most powerful person that ever lived in any age. Just pick one. And, and what you know, if you've been around a while, like most of us here today, then you already know that people who seem to have everything are usually the most miserable people. You know, it's, it's just slightly past my time, but I remember watching the whole journey of Michael Jackson, right? You know, during my time, because Michael Jackson and I were around the same age, I think, and, and you know, when I grew up, he was, he was one of the Jackson Five, and he was this cute little kid that could sing. Oh my gosh, he could sing, and their songs were fun. And then all of a sudden he recreated himself as a single act and he turned into the probably most famous person in the second half of the 20th century. I mean, he was a worldwide phenomenon. He had more money and wealth than he knew what to do with, but he lost his mind and eventually lost his life and his reputation and all that's left behind is, is his stuff and his music. This is what Solomon is talking about. This is what maybe Michael Jackson would say if he'd lived to an old age to talk about what he'd figured out, but he wasn't given the wisdom that Solomon had. 
Although he was raised in church, you know, and he, you know, he and his brothers had ample knowledge of these things. And I'm not, you know, an expert on the Jackson family or anything, so please don't assume that I know more than I do. But I watched this one person's life unfold during my lifetime. And I hear Solomon. Like, this is what it means. In vanity, in the pursuit of vanity. And, and here's the thing that Solomon is saying. This is where this really hits home. This is where it could get very personal for you. And yes, you could think about Michael Jackson on this. Because one thing I do know is, is he had daddy issues. Big time. Do you realize then that an awful lot of what he did that was crazy in most people's eyes was all a pursuit to try to reconcile in his mind his relationship with his father? Like he was going to prove to his father something. And it turned out that he could not do enough to make himself feel better about his perception of his dad's interpretation of him. You know what I mean? How many of us have pursued vainly achievement, attainment, wealth, personal uh, uh, credibility through credentialing, through, through you know, I, I mean, I know clergy, frankly, who have daddy issues and they've left churches with millions of dollars worth of debt and big empty buildings just so that they could show their daddy that this was a legitimate profession and you could make something of it and be something and be somebody. And all I can say is, it's great. What did it do for Christ? But this is what we do when we get all hung up on ourselves and we get self-absorbed. Vanity becomes the driving force. And Solomon, who used the word 38 times, says, it'll always leave a trail of destruction in its wake. Always. And so when I told you earlier about you know, what you can do to change the world. And I said, you just got to start with yourself. If, beloved, I've walked this journey my own way. And I've carried my burdens and had to discard things along the way in order to find personal well-being through Christ and the Holy Spirit. And so when I read Solomon, I hear him saying that this is something we all deal with. We all deal with this, this temptation to... to disprove some narrative that's been whispered in our ears since we were born and reconcile with it instead of just saying, that's garbage and I'm going to discard it on the side of the road towards peace and joy and leave it behind, which is the only solution. Instead, we carry it with us and we keep trying to balance against it with something on the other side. And so we think, well, if we have a bigger house, if we have better cars, if, if our kids get raised better than we were raised, if our kids get treated better than we got treated, if, if we do this, we'll be able to offset all this garbage we carry on this side of our saddle. And what God says is the first thing you need to do to reconcile with that is close the account, right? See, when we talk about forgiveness, I always think of it in these terms. Forgiveness is canceling a debt that you've been holding against somebody, right? You keep saying that you're never gonna forgive somebody and what you're saying is, is they owe you something and in, like, in all likelihood, they don't even know they owe it. And you know in your heart that if you went after them and said, you owe me and this is what you have to do before I'm gonna let this go, they would look at you like you're crazy because they long forgot about it. And you know that in your heart, which is why it bothers you so much and why you can't stop this 
unforgiveness because you don't want to admit that it's become your problem more than theirs now. And that doesn't make sense because you didn't cause this, they did, but now you're the one who's still suffering and they've long forgotten it. So the only way to create forgiveness that changes your life is for you to let it go. And so what you say is, is, you know what? I'm not going to expect this person to pay this debt anymore. I'm not gonna hold this debt against them anymore. I know I've walked this walk, my friends, and I have said to myself, you know what? I'm just gonna forgive them. And I'm not even gonna tell them I've forgiven them because that in itself will just fuel the problem all the more because then they're gonna look at me and say, for what? Which means that I was pursuing this vanity where I thought maybe that I could be better than them by forgiving them. (laughs) True forgiveness is to go up to the cross while you're nailed to it, bleeding out your last, and say to the ones who just put you there, not to them, but to the one who really holds all these accounts, Father, forgive them. So when you cancel a debt that you hold against another person, you're also dropping a vain pursuit. Now, once you've dropped that pursuit, you can then move forward to something better. That's the point that Solomon is trying to make here. Everything is striving against the wind if it's for the sake of vanity. And so now let's talk about another form of vanity that he is referring to here that I see as I drive around this community and as I think about all the people I've known in my lifetime. And we all know people like this, and I hope that if you're one of these people, you understand that I'm not judging you. I'm simply asking you to think about what Solomon is saying here. There are people who got a bigger house because they wanted their kids to have as much as someone else that they admired. They got their kid a new car because their kid's friend got a new car. They they got... Uh, a swimming pool because their neighbor's kid has a swimming pool. And how many people do you know who for the sake of vanity have put themselves deep in debt or carried a burden of things that outweighed their security that could have come through financial security? In other words, you got money in the bank for the crisis that might come tomorrow when, as Jesus said, everything you have you stored in your barn is gone. Right, so, so my point is, is that how many people calling themselves Christians who live by this book, they think, would ignore this message from Solomon that says, stop this vain pursuit of things. Get what you need because in his mind, you're better off if you're like those people whose lives are simple, who just get what they need every day. Get what you need Enjoy your life, have some comfort if you can afford that and bring it to others if you can afford that. But in the end, stop striving to outdo someone else because this envy will lead you towards a vanity that is even more destructive than that vanity where we're trying to outrun a bad memory, okay? That we can't outrun until we untie it. So... Solomon is putting vanity on a scale here, and he's saying that that at best, vanity is something we butt up against as we strive to achieve and attain 
worthwhile things. See, God doesn't mean for you to be idle. God doesn't mean for you to have a purposeless life. That's not what he's saying. He's saying those people who have purpose, but it's simple, are better off than he is because in his luxury, he's having a hard time figuring out what good it does anyway. If it doesn't make other people's lives better, then what good is his comfort? And so Solomon realizes that people living in his world, in his social climb, they're only happy when they're dead because they stop pursuing at that point. Do you, do you hear him say that in there? He says, you know, at this point, it'd be better off to just be dead because people who get on that vanity and sanity train start wishing they could just get off. It's like a roller coaster that never ends. And he's saying, I just want off. And he realizes that, you know, once you've attained a certain level of, of wealth and power and influence, there are just hangers on that never leave you alone. You know, like you see those videos of the sharks swimming along, great huge gigantic white shark, and there's all these little fish that are stuck to its side and swimming alongside. It's like, I'm safe as long as I'm with him. They don't want the shark to give up because they're depending on them. So what happens when you get on this vanity and sanity train is, is that you can't get off. And Solomon says, your best, your best answer is just be dead because then you don't have to be on that road anymore. You don't have to be pursuing that somewhere. Isn't this profound stuff? It's there, it's written in a kind of weird way, but it's very obvious what he means for us to say. So, so here's, here's what he says in the end. You'd be better off if you were born poor, young, and wise. Well, you know, obviously you're born young, but you know, if you would just start your life as a young, wise person instead of be a rich, old king. That's what he's saying. And isn't that true? Solomon, the teacher, because that's kind of what Ecclesiastes, the word Ecclesiastes means is in this case. The teacher is saying, would you listen to me and learn from my wisdom? You know, how many times as parents and grandparents do you find yourself saying, listen, please, don't do this. Don't go this way. I did and I regret it. Choose a better path. You know, and, and you know, most young people politely listen to them and then for vanity's sake say, what would an old bald guy like you know that I want to know? I mean, you know, they mean well, but you know, they just assume that you're outdated and, and irrelevant and our society doesn't help very much with that one. But the main message of Ecclesiastes, the one I've been using every message in this series since the first one is, is remember his prologue and his epilogue, which we covered in the introduction. He says, everything about life is a vain pursuit. It's vanity and sanity, unless all of your energy is focused on God. That's what he says. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. Put God ahead of everything else and you won't have to be on the vanity and sanity ride. And may God add blessing to the hearing of his word. Let us pray. Almighty God, thank you. Now burn upon our hearts those things that truly come from you so that you'll be glorified and we'll be changed and live for your name's sake, we pray. Amen. Amen.